I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Heads up, there are a couple swears in this episode. Okay, here's the show. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Justine Paradise, here with producer Felix Poon. Hey, so today's episode is the second Outside In book club featuring science journalist Annalee Newitz. Annalee Newitz is someone who talks and writes a lot about the future. One of their novels is called The Future of Another Timeline, a sci-fi crime story that involves time travel. And they host two podcasts, one that's called Deep Futures, in which Annalee invites us to, quote, escape into the distant future to learn what's coming. So clearly, Annalee thinks a lot about the future and the human species. And when they try to imagine possible futures, they often draw on the ancient past. And so, for example, if I'm writing about the world in 150 years, I like to look back 150 years and find out, well, how different things really were, you know, like, are there continuities? Um, What are the surprising continuities? What are the complete drastic differences? And so I think it's really important, especially right now, when I think we all know that we're at an inflection point in human civilization, that we think about what happened the last time we had civilizations that were uh, becoming unstable or transforming really rapidly. For this month's Outside In Book Club, we spoke with science journalist Annalie Newitz about their latest book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. It's a look at four ancient cities, Pompeii of the Roman Empire, Angkor in modern-day Cambodia, Chitalhoyuk, a city so ancient it's a little hard to imagine, and Cahokia 
an indigenous city near what's now St. Louis, Missouri. Through these four cities, Anna Lee explores how our conception of the past changes with both new technology and new ideas. And in the face of the existential threat of climate change, we also talked with them about what the stories of these cities can tell us about humanity's future. We started our conversation with Annalie by asking them about one of the first known cities in the world, Çatalhöyük. Çatalhöyük is a city that is located today in central Turkey. It's about 9,000 years old, and it's sort of like a honeycomb. So if you look at it from above, um, it looks like a kind of um, geometric shape that's all just squished together on top of um, a hill. Um, All of the houses are made from mud brick, They all share walls. Um, And each time a house would crumble, which was about every 20 or 30 years, people would build another house on top of it. So by the end of the city's life, it was on top of this pretty big hill that was made of these crumbled old houses underneath um, the foundations of the new houses. And people spent most of their time um, during the warmer months on their roofs. Um, So it was almost like a two-story city, and you would get into the city by climbing a ladder onto the roofs and walk across the roofs to get to your home, and you would enter your home through a doorway in the roof. Um, And these doorways would have probably been covered by structures. It wasn't like rain could just kind of come into your door. And um, there'd be a lot of stuff happening on the roof. People would be um, doing chores on the roof, cooking, uh, making tools, um, anything that was um, required light. And then in the um, downstairs area, in the in the sheltered part of the house, there was always a hearth and there were always um, bed platforms where people slept. Um, and some of those little cell houses would have been abandoned and turned into trash heaps. So people were squished in next to each other and next to dumpsters, basically. Um, so it must have been fragrant, shall we say. <laughs> So Felix, yeah, I think what's so powerful for me about learning about Chital, which is what the archaeologists call it, as we learned, <laughs> right? Chital. You know, the change from being a nomadic species um, to being a settled agricultural urban species is such a profound change, and Chital really is that moment. And mm. I think, like, it's wild to to hear about like what the sort of transition centuries were like in this city, like living in a, hun- a honeycomb. It's so cool. Right. Like there must have been some kind of culture shock to like go from nomadic living to like being all bunched up in this one place. Mm. So like Annalise like talking about some of these downsides of living in the city, like the smells and being bunched up together. But the upside you get is when people come together and form an urban community is innovation. Mm. And I thought it was really interesting, you know, when we talk about innovation in the 21st century, we usually think about like phone apps, like something digital, something like very almost sci-fi, right? Right. Like that that's our high tech, but their high tech is like, you know, it's completely different. In, in Chitalhayuk, 
Um, it's really fun to hear Annalie talk about this particular discovery of their high tech that was made at this excavation site. So they were with this archaeologist. His name is Ian Hodder. He pointed to this like rebar that had just been jammed into the ground several yards away from me. And he was like, that's the dairy line. Um, and you know, I was like, what, what's that? Um, that's the, that is the place in the stratigraphy um, where they start to see people cooking with milk. And I was like, holy crap. <laughs> um, you know, like to me, that's like as amazing as like humans going to space. You know, it's like there was this incredible breakthrough in how we could live at scale and the breakthrough was, wow, we have these goats and maybe we could like eat the thing that the baby goats are eating. And this is a really significant moment in human history, basically, because um, a lot of adult humans can't metabolize milk. Um, but because people start domesticating animals, um, it became so advantageous to be able to metabolize milk and eat milk that a mutation, a genetic mutation for metabolizing milk as an adult swept through the West um, just over a period of a few thousand years. And then um, I talked to an archaeologist who said that we have evidence that they almost immediately started figuring out ways to dehydrate milk. And so they could have like instant soup made with wow. um, dehydrated milk, like mixed with grains and stuff like that. And so they just, they had a freaking cooking revolution. It was like amazing. And so at that moment, I was like, I understand who these people were. They were innovators, they were high tech people. And to me, um, that's, that's kind of urbanism, is like people coming together and coming up with weird ass stuff that they never would have thought of if they'd just been living together with 50 people wandering around. I love how Annalie draws this through line from the Chatal instant soup, which I would love to see like a branded, you know, marketing version of that oh, uh, yeah. to like our instant soup, our instant ramen. So like even though that city doesn't exist anymore, we can feel a connection to to Chital whenever the next time is that you don't feel like making dinner and you like pull out that pack of instant ramen. Right. Maybe we should uh, bring it back. Should we get into some uh, entrepreneurship here and do a Chatal instant <laughs> soup? <laughs> get it at your local grocery store. Yeah, screw podcasting. So there's so much that's interesting about what life was like living in Chatal. But what's equally fascinating is how people decided to leave and abandon the city. And archaeologists, they don't all agree on why Chital was abandoned after over a thousand years of being inhabited. But what Anna Lee writes about in their book, a likely cause was climate change. There was this event that scientists call the 8.2 Ka event because it happened 8.2 thousand years ago when essentially Earth was emerging from an ice age and a massive amount of fresh water emptied into the ocean and disrupted this uh, thing that's called the thermohaline circulation, just threw it out of whack. And basically what that meant was warm water wasn't able to traverse the globe. And that made things colder. Temperatures dropped about 4 degrees Celsius around the Chatalhoyuk area. There was a drought food shortages, and all that probably led to people leaving the city, which meant that there were fewer people around to fix homes that might have been crumbling, infrastructure falling apart. 
and potential dynamics of social inequality. Whatever the reasons, the city emptied out over the course of a few centuries. But here's the thing that's really interesting, though. Even though Chital was abandoned, Annalie says that there's no such thing as a lost city. Here they are reading a passage from their book on this. Terms like lost city and civilizational collapse are the wrong ones to use in a case like this. Instead, it's more accurate to say the city underwent a transition. Indeed, there was never a time when Chitalhuyuk wasn't in transition from one kind of cultural arrangement to the next. That's the difficult part about studying cities. They're not static entities that remain the same over time before suddenly disappearing into nothingness. So Justine, this got me a little confused because I'm like, wait, isn't the title of your book Four Lost Cities? <laughs> it's a little bit of a myth-busting move, I think. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a troll. Um, and it was really because I wanted to invoke that sense of uh, mystery and to call to mind these cities that many of us know pretty well from the myth um, in order to explain, actually, no, these were not lost. These were abandoned. And here's why. It's because people made the choice to leave that city. And that was a political and a cultural choice. You know, no city ever loses itself. Annalie said that one reason why the lost city is such a pervasive myth is partly just, you know, pure entertainment. Like, it's a fun idea to think of a city as being lost. Like, I think about, you know, the lost city of Babylon or something. Right. Because then you can tell the adventurous tales of the people who discover it. And another reason that cities are thought of as lost happens when Western archaeologists, quote unquote, discover a site in a non-Western part of the world. Classic move. Often when you get a story about, say, the city of Angkor, which is in today's Cambodia, um, that was a city that was never truly abandoned. Uh, people continued living there. Uh, but when Europeans uh, stumbled on it in the 19th century, they wanted to claim that it was a lost city, partly because they wanted to disavow the fact that Southeast Asia had been home to the greatest civilization in the world just mm. about a thousand years before. And when I say the greatest civilization, I just mean the cities were bigger than any other cities in the in the world at that time. Uh -huh. um, this was a massive empire, the Khmer Empire, that was based at Angkor. Um, you know, it would have easily challenged any kind of European, you know, settlement or city at that time. And you know, it's it's really in the interest of a colonizing force to say nothing's ever been here, nothing of note has ever been done in this country. When we come in with our European ways, we're the ones who are creating a civilization. Anything else is lost. Uh -huh. um, and we see the same pattern in the Americas when uh, Europeans come across the ruins of a city like Cahokia, which I talk about in the book, which was a massive city um, that was a going concern about a thousand years ago, long before Europeans came. Um, and Europeans were like, maybe uh, Egyptians built this? Like, we're not sure, but it's definitely lost. Whatever it is, is not here anymore. Um, and we're the only civilized folks here. Okay, so the myth of the lost city exists because it's entertaining, because of colonialism. <laughs> but a third reason Annalie points to is because of the strong cultural association in the West with the end times. The end times. You know, especially here in the United States, like oftentimes 
we associate change with apocalypse kind of comes out of that whole Judeo-Christian idea of like, you know, oh my God, the apocalypse is coming. Like it's always coming. And, you know, that's like what our civilization kind of uses as a metaphor for change. So Annalise says this idea of lost cities was popular in the 19th and 20th centuries, along with the idea of a collapsed civilization, like one that just disappears, no longer has any influence on the modern world. You know, it was just a dead end. Yeah, this idea is still pretty popular, actually. In 2005, um, some of you might know the author Jared Diamond. He published a book called Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed. God, being reminded of the subtitle of that book, Choose to Fail or Succeed. So, like, he paints this picture of several civilizations in his book that he says brought about their own collapse and commits a kind of, quote-unquote, ecocide or ecological suicide, essentially saying, like, they are to blame for their own demise. And as Anna Lee told us, a lot of archaeologists take major issue with this. Because first of all, just because a city is abandoned doesn't mean its civilization dies. Um, you know, people might leave an area and move to a new area um, and start up again uh, with a lot of the same beliefs and practices of the civilization that supposedly collapsed. And so um, archaeologists I talk to prefer to use the term um, you know, civilizational transition. Um, mm. So that like, say, when uh, Chitalhoyuk is finally abandoned, um, there's a very clear pattern that we see that is a transformative pattern. And what happens is, and Ian Hodder put this to me in a very poetic way, he said, basically, it's like the city of Chitalhoyuk is like a dandelion and it explodes. And all of these people who'd been living there leave. And so we see the city empty out around the same time that we start to find the remains of small villages all around it. And then, uh, you know, during the great kind of Mesopotamian flowering of urban life with cities like Uruk and stuff, uh, you know, many thousands of years later, we start to see those emerge in the region and they're very different. But it is one that has grown out of this previous civilization. And so if you're thinking about how civilizations work, um, it's really important to remember that just because people abandon a great city or a set of monuments, it doesn't mean that they've stopped having the culture that they had in those places. I just love that dandelion metaphor. Totally. Yeah. And Annalie actually applies this exploding dandelion understanding of the past to the future that we're looking at now in 2021 and the existential threat of climate change the looming threat of a new mass extinction and how humans might survive it. That's coming up after this break. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Before we get back to our conversation with author Annalie Newitz, we'd like to announce our next Outside In Book Club pick. Our next book is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law by Mary Roach. It's an investigation into the unpredictable world where wildlife and humans meet. Like, what's to be done about a jaywalking moose? Or a bear caught breaking and entering. Or a murderous tree. So it used to be that animals that broke the law would be assigned legal representation and put on trial. But these days, as author Mary Roach writes, the answers are best found in science. So let us know if you have any questions you think we should ask Mary Roach. You can email us or tag us on social media. We're at Outside In Radio on Twitter and Instagram. You can also use the hashtag ReadingOutsideIn. And again, the book title is Buzz, When Nature Breaks the Law by Mary Roach. It comes out on September 14th, 2021. We'll link to it in the show notes and on our website, OutsideInRadio.org. All right, back to the show. We're back. Today's book club episode features Annalie Newitz, whose latest book is called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. And before we jump back into things, producer Felix Poon. Yes, Justine Paradise. <laughs> address people by their full names always. Um, <laughs> and titles. But I got to ask you, though, uh, let our yeah. titles aside, I got to ask, yes. um, did you have a favorite moment from our interview with Annalie? Yeah, there were a lot of good moments, but I think the one that comes to my mind most is the the part where they talk about licking a bone. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that, that was probably, I mean, how could you really top that moment? I think that was my favorite <laughs> moment, too. Uh, this yeah. was when they were talking about an excavation in Cahokia, which is in Illinois, just across the Mississippi River from the city of St. Louis. And they had dug up this lump of some sort of clay-like thing from the floor of the house. Um, and Anna Lee asked these freshman archaeology students who were there digging with them, you know, like, what is this thing? What is this lump? And so they were like, well, do you want to know if it's a piece of um, ceramic or a bone? And I was like, yeah, I want to know. And they were like, well, you got to lick it. <laughs> um, and what you do, if you lick a bone, your tongue will stick to it because bones have a kind of... Um, uh, like a honeycomb um, texture so that your your tongue sticks to it. Unlike, um, you know, ceramic, you'll just kind of lick it and it won't really be sticky. So I licked it 
because you know <laughs> um this, this I, is what you do <laughs> this is you know this <laughs> is an investigation sites yeah right i'm an investigative journalist i will investigate with my tongue so um so i looked at it and it was a bone um and it was really cool i mean it's kind of gross i guess but i love the fact that like Somebody had chomped on this bone like a thousand years ago, and now I was like back there, like licking the bone. Do do we know what kind of bone it was that you licked? It was probably a deer bone. It was almost certainly. So, um, yeah, no, they barbecued it and and threw it away and uh, figured that that was it for that bone and probably didn't anticipate (laughs) that um, in a thousand years, archaeologists would be like, Wow, this is the coolest. Can, can you imagine at our next barbecue, someone like a thousand years down the road, could, you know, licks a bone that we ate from our summer barbecue? You know, it could happen. But yeah, I always warn people that one of the things that I learned from my many years of studying archaeology now is that trash is gold and that we learn a lot from trash. And so when you're throwing things away, keep in mind that the things that you may be remembered for in a thousand years are the is the is your trash not the beautiful things that you wrote mm. not the wonderful podcasts you recorded that <laughs> no. stuff will all be gone but that you know thing that you threw away like they'll be like oh this tells us a lot about their material culture this is devastating at least <laughs> <laughs> just devastating that was such a gem in our interview with Annalie you say gem, and yet I was left like completely horrified as I was thinking about what <laughs> what would my trash pile uh, yield like, or the trash pile that is the digital trash that is my browser history. Like, mm. can you imagine <laughs> archaeologists <laughs> sifting through that those items left behind? Because I would rather not. <laughs> We were talking in the first half of the episode about how cities that are abandoned are kind of like dandelions. Like, Annalie was talking about this metaphor that they explode and then the seeds go off and get planted and flower in new places as new cities that are in a lot of ways like evolutions of the old cities. Right. And we were curious to know from Annalie, like, why study cities in the first place? Like, we get studying the past to understand the future. But why cities in particular? They told us that it had to do with their previous book, a novel called Scatter, Adapt, and Remember. And a big part of my research for that book um, kept coming back to the fact that cities are actually incredibly good uh, survival vehicles um, for large numbers of people and that they can also be built really sustainably. And I just... I love the fact that cities are a concrete embodiment of collective human action. And that is such a beautiful and profound thing to see. Even when the city is super screwed up, you can still see uh, the work of so many people embodied in it. And it's, um, it's just fascinating. And I wanted to know, how did this ever even happen? <laughs> how did we start doing these? You know, it's just, it's just the weirdest thing ever. Yeah. How are they better survival vehicles than, say, some different configuration like a nomadic lifestyle or a a rural lifestyle? So, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, environmental activists who are thinking now about how um, cities can be used for more efficient um, scaling of energy resources, healthcare resources, food resources, a lot easier to deliver goods and services to people who are in one 
place uh, than it is to bring it to people in a lot of scattered rural areas. And we're, we're seeing this now in the United States where rural areas are suffering more from environmental disaster. They're suffering more from um, lack of healthcare resources, lack of um, access to information resources, like just plain old internet connections. Um, and so the more that our population grows, the more it seems to make sense to keep us as much as possible um, in a, you know, in a space where we're closer together. One of the most surprising takeaways, I think, on the resilience of cities comes from an example of what is usually described as a terrible disaster, and that's the destruction of Pompeii. Pompeii was buried under 20 feet of hot ash when Mount Vesuvius erupted. And Annalise says that what most people don't realize is that most Pompeians survived. There were some initial earthquakes and an initial eruption of smoke that triggered an evacuation of the city before it was buried. In fact, when archaeologists look at the city that's preserved in the ash, they're actually seeing the city in a state of disarray as people were in the process of trying to flee. Here's Annalise. The transitional aspect of that story is that the Roman government actually came in and um, did a whole disaster relief program. The emperor um, at the time, Titus, and then later his brother Domitian, paid out money to um, a lot of the local cities that had survived um, that were that were um, on the coast. Um, and so cities like Naples, for example, um, got a lot of money to build new neighborhoods for refugees. And they came to live in all these other coastal cities in that region um, of, of what is now Italy. Um, and we have all of these records um, from gravestones and from remains that, um, that they formed these really vibrant refugee communities. And they stayed together identifying as Pompeians um, and intermarried and um, so there was a, a huge amount of continuity there. The other interesting thing that Annalie writes about is that a lot of people got a fresh new start, like the formerly enslaved. They got to inherit money from their rich patrons who perished in the disaster. And so because of that, they were able to jump up the socioeconomic ladder. Some of them, I think, also just ditched their old names, like the names right. associated with their enslavement and just, you know, pretended to be to belong to a different social class. They're like, why would I take this identity forward? <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I was really interested in how this could be a model for how we might handle climate migration and climate refugees. Like yeah. this has happened before, uh, refugees from a natural disaster. And if we take notes from the Roman playbook, our government should invest in resettling people and build up neighborhoods and provide resources for them. I also think Cahokia is a really interesting city to think about as an example of a city in transition. Totally, yeah. So Cahokia is the one that's in the modern-day United States. It's located in Illinois, near what's now St. Louis, Missouri. And its apex was in 1050 CE, with a population of up to 30,000 people. Annalie describes the culture as Mississippian, like the culture of Cahokia lives on in different tribes, including the Osage. But the thing I thought was most fascinating is just how much Cahokia was actually built as an impermanent place, as an impermanent city. When you were done with a house, you burned it down and you built a new house. 
Um, You didn't preserve the house. You didn't have a historical preservation society. And it really does appear that this was how people treated the city as well. Um, The city went through a number of really dramatic transformations during its, um, you know, three to 400 year lifespan. And at a certain point, um, people just started leaving. Uh, It appears that um, there were some conflicts in the city and um, the neighborhoods in the city began to move further and further apart from each other um, and finally just left um, and probably uh, became um, you know, members of the groups that later became the Sioux tribes and the Sioux uh, groups uh, that are scattered across uh, the plains. And I think it's a great lesson for us in the West um, for, you know, the settlers, the colonial settlers that came um, to the Americas. And we brought with us folks from the West brought, you know, a tradition of city building that we kind of inherited from Rome, which was like, you build a thing and you want it to last forever. And you want, you know, it to be made from stone and you want your roads to be made from stone. And you want your, st- your roads to last forever. And so uh, we kind of have a clash here in the Americas between those two ideas of what a settlement does and how long you stay there and why you make them. Um, and uh, so I think, one of the lessons that we get from these cities is that, you know, cities to don't have to be permanent to be awesome. Right. Yeah. And and maybe there's a lesson there, actually, as we go into, you know, this era of climate change and climate migration. Yeah. I mean, how do you build a city that can handle uh, that kind of um, adversity? And one answer is like, like with Cahokia, don't build a city that you expect to be permanent. Like expect your city to move around. Um, build cities that can um, be uh, broke, that can leave no trace, you know, that are like basically recyclable, uh, essentially. Um, and indeed, that's what, what you see at Cahokia. Every, everything in the city was built from wood um, and, and it's no longer there. You, all that's left are these beautiful earthen mounds. Um, and so... I think we do need to be re-examining um, how we think about settlement as we go into an era when um, the climate is going to become more and more unpredictable. So, Justine. Yeah. <laughs> How optimistic are you feeling about climate change in light of uh, everything you've learned from these four cities? Nice softball question, Felix. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing, I, I did an episode on climate migration about a year ago from when we are recording this, or a little little less, and one of the experts, um, it was uh, Jola Ajibade, said, and permanence is going to be the new normal, and we just we kind of have to get used to that, and that can either be a deliberate or an, an intentional process or can be mm-hmm. um, you know a process of refugees and, and people having to move from place to place without you know institutional support yeah it, I think it's an it, it's an inevitability like we if the science is correct right now like w- we will abandon cities you know um, but it's like to me that's that's part of it it's like yes we should we we need to retreat let's do it deliberately 
let's definitely do it deliberately in a way that's equitable and preserves our humanity, right? Like, let's not do the individual bomb shelter strategy. <laughs> totally. And Anna Lee was pretty optimistic. Here they are reading a passage from their book. Though nearly every generation believes it's living through the end times, there has never been a great civilizational collapse from which we didn't return. Instead, there has been only the long road of transformation, each generation handing off its unfinished projects to the next. I do think that um, humans are going to survive this anthropogenic climate change. I don't think it's going to be fun for everyone, but we're not going to wink out of existence. We're just going to change. And I think the one thing that I really want to emphasize is that um, when civilizations are going through really tough transformations like the ones that we're facing right now, uh, keep in mind that the historical examples that I looked at each of these cities was menaced by some kind of environmental challenge, and it was combined with political instability. And that's really the one-two punch that you have to worry about. Um, cities can make it through incredibly tough environmental um, difficulties. Uh, Chitalhoyuk went through a horrible drought uh, that lasted for you know, centuries, possibly. And they made it through. They changed their diet, they changed the way they farmed, and they made it. Um, but later in their history, um, they had a lot of political problems combined with uh, environmental problems. And that was really what seems to have precipitated the abandonment. And that's the pattern we see everywhere. So um, try to maintain uh, a good, solid democratic political system, or just a good, solid political system, um, in the face of environmental adversity. I think that's one of the big lessons. Is this meant to be encouraging? <laughs> I'm just trying to say, infrastructure plan. Yeah. <laughs> actually, um, it is really true when I hear about the infrastructure plan. I'm like, yes, this is like a thing that is actually going to help. Thank you so much, Annalie, for um, joining us on Outside In and talking to us about your book. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. That was Annalie Newitz, author of Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. If you read the book or enjoyed this conversation, we'd love to know what you think. You can email us. Our address is outsidein at nhpr.org. Our next book club pick is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law by Mary Roach. It's an investigation into the unpredictable world where wildlife and humans meet. So let us know if you have any questions you think we should ask Mary Roach. Get in touch. It's the same method. You can email us or you can tag us on social media. We're at Outside In Radio on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also use the hashtag Reading Outside In. Don't forget about the newsletter. You can sign yourself up for that at our website, outsideinradio.org. This episode was produced by Felix Poon with me, Justine Paradise, and support from Taylor Quimby and Jessica Hunt. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. And some news about Erica, she is actually leaving us. And just a quick word of goodbye here. I don't know if I'm ever going to have another editor who's an expert on the 19th century spiritualist movement, who makes all her own dresses, or who wrote a whole book about apples. This is a very rare person. What's also really special is that she is a person who believes so much in the people in her professional charge. I am so grateful to have had a boss who cares so much. 
And we will really miss you, Erica. The next people who work with you are very lucky people. Music came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Don't forget, we're a production of a public radio station, so please consider donating to support the show. You can do that at outsideinradio.org. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.